You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is Season 7, Episode 7. Kimberly Johnson is a singer, songwriter, producer, and musician from New Zealand, who's now based in New York City. Her award-winning debut album, Vows, was released in 2011, and in 2012, she appeared on Gautier's multi-platinum single, Somebody That I Used To Know. We fumble around, stones through the mesh, we reap as we sow. Kimber's music pushes the boundaries of genre and style, juxtaposing pop sensibilities with influences in jazz, R&B, and electronic music. Lyrically, Kimber expresses the deeper longings of the human heart. Her poetic verses draw from personal experience, imaginative religious imagery, and reveal a depth of honesty, vulnerability, and reflection. I had the opportunity to sit down with Kimbra for a conversation on her creative process and the deeper experiences of the artist's life. If you're a patron of the podcast, you can enjoy an additional interview segment with Kimbra at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. Be sure to also check out Kimbra's Patreon page at patreon.com slash kimbramusic. I had to speak protocol, in my tongue. Sometimes I hear this is my interview with Kimbra on transcendence and the interior life of the artist. Kimber, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Makers and Mystics today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and so I'm really looking forward to diving into some of the nuances of your creative process with you. Totally. I really enjoy your podcast, too. I've tuned into a few episodes. It's super interesting. Good. Well, you know, there are so many different aspects to your music and your art that we could talk about today, but I want to dive right into the deep end. One thing that I'm really interested in discussing with you is the interior life of the artist and your process as a songwriter and as a performer, some of those nuances and challenges that you face in your creative process. So I think we should just dive in and see where we get with that. I love that. Sounds great. I'm always fascinated with those moments of inspiration that leads to the development of a song or an idea. Because, you know, as artists, we are given to exploration. It's kind of our nature to explore, to push the boundaries. Uh, We're always looking for that next discovery or for that creative spark that we can't ignore, you know? Yeah. But not every idea that comes to us carries that magic. So I'm curious for you, what is that aha moment when you come to recognize whether it's a melody or a beat or a sequence of chords, when you recognize that it's carrying that magic, like what is that spark you look for that compels you Mm. to pursue one idea over another? Yeah. Well, I mean, a big sign for me that something is going in a inspiring direction is if 
words and images start to free flow. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you'll come up with, you know, I'll, I'll come up with something that has a vibe to it. It feels, you know, um, compelling, but no words are coming and no images are coming to mind. So in that case, I usually put it to the side and maybe it's just not the right time for that to have its moment. There's nothing that is connecting the dots for me between a narrative experience and the music. But then there's those beautiful moments where the music immediately sparks a narrative and a lyric. And I think that's usually when I'm like, okay, this is, you know, I should run with this. Um, Also a feeling of originality, like a sense like, oh, this doesn't sound like anything else. This sounds kind of like a new thing, you know, that's usually what keeps me excited. Um, And it is a little bit like, you know, you get this flirtatious feeling with the idea, like a little heart flutter, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just some kind of, I've, I've heard Elizabeth Gilbert talk about in her books, setting up dates with inspiration, you know, going yes. on a date with, and, and it's kind of a bit like that. It's like a flutter of like, ooh, a little bit of yeah, <laughs> excitement. So, um, oh man, I wish it was like that every time. And I certainly <laughs> don't want to set up the ideal that, you know, that's my process <laughs> because it's not, but, um, I totally. do know, I do know when it happens and it is a perhaps even kind of a mystical thing, you know, to stay mm. on the brand with the podcast. It is yeah, yeah. kind of mysterious. You mentioned several times imagery. And so I'd be curious to know, because a lot of musicians often talk about seeing sounds and that kind of that synesthesia of seeing things. Do you experience that some in your creative process? You know, um, romantically, I want to say, yes, of course. (laughs) But uh, to be honest with you, I actually um, express in a, a form of gibberish before I ever start putting real images down. So even before the point where proper lyric would emerge, I would start with the vowel sounds. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there certainly colors in the sense of not so much visual colors, but colors of tonality. So like mm-hmm. I might be singing in a certain character voice or singing super down low or using vowel sounds and E's and R's and O's and, and things mm-hmm. that have texture and and you know, consonants that might be quite bold and cutting. Mm -hmm. And you see, this forms a little bit of a vocabulary for the song, even though it's not real words yet. And Mm -hmm. then the process becomes, what am I trying to say there? What am I, what does it sound like I'm saying there? What, what is this evoking in terms of a landscape or a maybe interaction I had with Mm -hmm. someone recently? So yeah, it's less immediate images and more sound, um, like <laughs> just exciting f- phrases with the mouth. Like I want to yes. use, does that make sense? Like Total I want sense. the mouth to move in a way where I get this satisfaction with mm-hmm. the, the vowel sounds. And then yeah. that provides a place for me to then apply images. And then it, of course there'll be the days where an image just pops straight yeah. up, but it, yeah, yeah. G- it genuinely happens the other way around um, generally. Yeah. <laughs> It reminds me of two different things. One, if you've read uh, David Byrne's book, How to Make Music, which is so brilliant, but he coins a phrase that I often steal from him uh, called the emergence of meaning Mm. and how oftentimes in art making that meaning emerges after the creative process has already begun, you know, and that's kind of what I hear you saying. Yes. And you have to be very patient because (laughs) it may really take a good year or so to (laughs) reveal itself. And that's sort of the uh, commitment you have to have to your art, that it's, mm-hmm. it's not going to be overnight that you get that creation. Yes. And if you force it, sometimes it, it uh, debilitates the creative process, I would think. That is true. Yeah. yeah. 
It's kind of like a relationship you have to get to know. I think it was Madeline Engel, maybe, uh, who talked about uh, serving the work and getting to know what it is that this song or this this writing or this novel wants to become. Absolutely. Yeah, I think every song does have a sort of final evolution or manifestation of what it wants to be. And sometimes mm-hmm. if you're pushing something to be like a top 40 pop song or whatever, and it's just not working, there comes a point where you go, I think this is just meant to be more of an, you know, strange avant-garde interlude. And it just wants to be that, you know? And I think that's definitely like a skill to learn Mm -hmm. the perception of just what is this asking of me? (laughs) Yes. I love that question. What is, what is this asking of me? What is the art asking of me? I think that would be something that artists of any discipline could learn from. I want to learn that in my own life. I, Mm. I think it was, um, Dorothy Sayers, another one of my heroes, brilliant woman, but she said that when she was writing fiction, that sometimes the characters never did what she wanted them to do. Wow, <laughs> you so know. interesting. And she had to let the characters do what they wanted to do or live the lives that they wanted to live rather yeah. than dictating. And I would imagine that's kind of the same thing of, of what you're saying for some of your songs. Yeah, I think that's a good um, comparison for sure. And that's again, taking off (laughs) the need to control every part of the process. That's very tempting because we want to manipulate the outcome and kind of um, put it into boxes and things. But like Dorothy Sayers is saying, these characters are emerging and they are of you, but they are not you. They are this kind of new thing that's creating and it's important to listen and actually have a a dialogue with that, you know? And yeah, it sounds all very abstract, but I think you do know (laughs) what I mean. (laughs) Totally. Here's a personal question then. Which of your songs would you say have surprised you the most? Hmm, very good. Well, I would say um, As You Are was a song that was on the Golden Echo and for so long, it was just a series of um, strange gibberish sounds. And I honestly thought I was never going to crack that one. I just thought this one's just never going to, I cannot find out what it wants to be about. It just is so abstract. It's sort of, I, I had the come as you are, come let me take a picture. But what was the picture? What was it about? What? Who was the picture? What's the photographer? I just had no idea. And, it, you know, it really did just come a good year or so later. And it occurred to me that, I, you know, I'd, I'd been romantic with a photographer in the past, that I had a, a difficult um, ending to that re- relationship. And I remember much of the vulnerability of the relationship was that he did. Um, he he was a photographer and a painter, and he painted me. And this, there was this whole interesting dynamic and nuance around him having captured something of me and me having trusted him in that space. And it just all I was like, that's what the song is about. That's the vulnerability that he asked me to come as I am and to take a picture, and ultimately, you know, kind of broke my heart that what ended up happening. Sure. But there was this kind of just moment of knowing that that's what the picture reference was. It was that. This, it was this painter and it was this and then of course ideas of like social media came into that and my relationship with my audience who are always holding their cameras up to perform you know to a performer rather than um engaging and you know in reality just with them so that was a, a, a surprise because I just I never would have thought it would become such a intensely specific song 
when it was so abstract for so for so long. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? That makes perfect sense. It made me think about how really art making is such a vulnerable space in general. You know, whether whether you're the subject in that example of someone else's art or whether you as a songwriter and a composer, you're the one making the art. It's art making is such a vulnerable space. Oh, it really is. And it's a lot (laughs) of time spent inside, um, both inside my apartment and the studio, but also inside your mind. And that can be, um, that can be vulnerable in of itself because you come into contact with um, wonderful things like imagination and sorcery and kind of these fantastic superpowers. But you also come into contact with, you know, <laughs> we've already talked a bit about this, the inner critics and yeah. those things that that seek to kind of push us down. Um, mm-hmm. So it's vulnerable for that reason too. Yeah. It's fascinating you bring that up about the inner critic because recently in our creative collective, We've been reading the book Art and Fear by David Bales and, and okay. Ted Orland are the authors. And are you familiar with that book? I'm not, but I, I'm very intrigued. I would, I would love to give you this book. <laughs> but in the book, the authors talk about those inner critics that we carry with us that flood us with questions about what other people are going to think about what we're making, if our work is important, if it's worth even pursuing. And I would love for you to speak into that a bit if you could, like, how do you handle your own inner critics? Do you have any like rituals or practices that help you deal with some of that darker stuff? Yeah. Oh man, it is a, it's a daily, um, I will say struggle because, you know, it's the thing that holds me back from stepping into the studio. I I look at the studio, I want to go in there, but then I do become, you know, flooded with, yeah, but what if I don't come up with anything good? What if I'm left there by myself with an idea that's just not good enough? What if I, you know, uh, can't stop thinking about expectations people have of me? What if, what if? And I think I take an inventory these days, you know, before I step in, I kind of look into, okay, what am I scared of right now? Um, And just be okay with that. Just know that they're going to be there in the room, but they don't have to take over, you know? Um, (laughs) Some people have techniques with you know managing anxiety and stuff to to even give it a name you know like I kind of call my inner critic like Uncle Frank or something you know like (laughs) he's the guy at the dinner table that's making like semi-racist remarks and you kind of have to just like sort of you know hold him accountable but also you you love him but it's just like he is not in touch with reality and he's just gonna (laughs) keep talking you know and I think some days I have to kind of compartmentalize like that um I also have a little ritual of like not dressing up as such, but kind of really trying to intentionally arrive in the studio with a coat of armor, which might actually just be like a lovely dress or like something that, you know, I I like to think of it as not only my job, but my deep heart work, you know, this is my, my, it's, it's a place of prayer as well. When I come Mm. into the studio, you know, maybe I'll light a candle and like be Mm. in flowing fabric because I want to, um, honor the potential of what can happen when you give yourself up to inspiration. Um, and you know, this may be a practice I have to do 10 times a day, you know, Mm. I mean, this is not just a do it once and (laughs) we're off on a great start. It, it, I really want to, 
encourage others um, that, you know, people at all levels of creativity are working through this battle with the self consistently. Mm-hmm. But those are some ideas that I have. I think my meditation practice and daily sort of silence is a form of self-acceptance and quieting the mind, so to speak, so that I'm better in a better position to turn up to the studio because I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I know what's going on. I'm becoming familiar with it. But I also am trying to always come back to the inner child. Mm-hmm. And I would say that maybe that is also the place where God resides in us, like mm-hmm. that very deep essence that doesn't judge and doesn't, it's just a witness to things. And genuine joy and genuine excitement. Um, so whatever takes me in that direction, if I yeah. get that excited feeling by a new sound or putting on a record that gives me that that joy, then I know I'm, I'm moving in the direction away from criticism and toward non-judgment and playfulness. Yeah? Yes, come on. <laughs> mm. no, that's good. That's so good. I love even what you said about when you come into your creative space, you'll often dress for the occasion. And I I think there's something to be said about, you know, even you mentioned playfulness. When kids go to play, what do they do? But they dress up or they go to a playground. They go to a sacred space. And so I, I often see playfulness as one of the foundational keys to creativity, but also as a sacred space. You know, it's a set apart space. And when we approach creativity in that way, I think it kind of offers its gifts to us. Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you an insight I had just recently. I, I have been finding it hard to be in the studio as of late, and I've sort of been trying to work out why, you know, what is it that's not feeling right about the space? And you know, and it occurred to me that I, I live in Manhattan and I am sort of have my neighbors because we're all looking in on each other in New York, you know, it's not like we have ocean <laughs> views. Um, and there's no sort of blinds for the window. The windows are just open to the sky and to other, you know, people on the street, which could be seen as a great thing. But I've realized that for me, in order to embrace this sort of mystery and this place of stillness and possibility, I kind of need it to feel a bit secretive. And mm-hmm. I need it to feel a bit like shut away from the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just like invested this week in like window blinds so that I can completely <laughs> block out the light. And it's like such a simple thing, but I, I really feel like it is going to be, I think the invasion of the possibility of other people looking in and, and seeing, you know, that's performance. That's the space of performance. But this is not a place of performance. Mm-hmm. This is a place of something more internal and yeah. Again, how do we just get rid of the possible judgment? And, and it's something as simple as that is how you've oriented where the windows are <laughs> might <Yeah>. be, you know, <laughs> might play into the, the, the feeling of sacredness. Here goes another late night call, waiting on another black line. You're talking about this inward attentiveness on the part of the artist. And and I think that's something that is true for every artist, whether we're standing before a blank canvas, writing poetry or creating music, there is this attentiveness or a sensitivity to our inner world that's necessary if we're gonna create authentic, raw, honest music in your case, that is not a product of that inner critic, you know, but it's something genuine and true. But I think the shadow side of that is that for some of us, and maybe I'm guilty of this in my own creative path, is that there's a risk of becoming self-absorbed or overly self-focused in an unhealthy way. I'm curious if you could speak to that some from your own process. 
Yeah, that's a big one because I think we've seen a lot of artists become so enamored with their own feelings and I'm guilty of it too, that it becomes really hard to have perspective and and I think that's why many people turn to addiction as artists and, and look to kind of find es- escapism um, because it can be really noisy and really, you know, the, the, the dilemma is you kind of want to get outside of yourself, right? That's what you're trying to do with art. But it requires you to go so deep within yourself to access that thing. So it's yes. a paradox. And <laughs> it is a paradox. Yeah. Um, but I think that, again, I brought up a silent practice. Um, and that might seem like a kind of another form of going inward. So why would you want another form? But I actually think that when practiced over a long period of time and when I look at the people I admire that have a meditation practice, mm-hmm. it actually puts you in deeper touch with the world and in deeper touch with your emotions, but not in a way where they're all so important and so overwhelming. It's like you can differentiate between the thoughts and like, oh, here's another thought. Okay, here's another feeling. And actually, hopefully, the the, the hope is get in, in touch and um, acquainted with, with the witness beneath all of that, right? Mm. And that is where we touch others. That's where love, where we see each other, where we really see each other. Yes. And Thomas Merton is uh, one of my oh. favorite authors and he talks about, um, he has this amazing quote about how the work, it may receive outcomes, it may not. You have to be prepared for the fact that your work may not actually have any result at all. And he says, as you get used to this idea of your work you know, not having any grand results, you gradually struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for people, for specific people, because in the end, it's all about personal relationship. And that always grounds me because I think about, you know, yes, I have to spend a lot of time inside myself, but what is it for? It's so that I can connect with others. That's what it all comes down to at the end. Right? Like, what is the point of all of this self work on the self and everything (laughs) if it doesn't have an impact on our relationships and impact us in the live arena? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's that's another reorienting I have to do often is to be like, how can I get out in the world today? How can I balance all the interior stuff that I do with? giving back with with relationship, with going over to a friend's house and just listening to them for like mm-hmm. an hour about what they're going through and realizing that part of my work as an artist is to be a good listener because that might be something that I end up, you know, trying to articulate and 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 giving a voice to, you know, mm-hmm. for that person, maybe where mm-hmm. they couldn't do it for themselves. Yeah. So it's actually very much work for others and with mm-hmm. others, but yes. it has this, this um, like you say, perhaps um, internal side that needs to be watched because mm-hmm. it can turn very, um, <laughs> yeah, just like, what's the word? Like, yeah, self-absorbed. It can turn sure. into that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've often asked myself the question, who is your art meant to love? You know, hmm. who does your who is your art meant to love? Who is who is this piece? Who is this poem? What is this song? What is this work? Wow. You know, who is it meant to love? That's really beautiful. 
you mentioned Thomas Merton, and uh, of course I admit that I know that you love Thomas Merton just because I follow you on Instagram, and I was excited when I saw that you would quote him sometimes. Also, Frederick Beckner is someone that I've, I've heard you quote, and Teresa Vavila, and of course Rilke. But I also know about you that I would say that you as a performer come in the lineage of those like Bjork and Prince and then also maybe a dash of some David Bowie in there. I love him. Yeah, you know, and and so in my mind, this makes total sense. Uh, somehow I can put Thomas Merton alongside of Bjork and <laughs> and it's, it's like this, yes, yes, finally, you know, these two expressions go hand in hand. But I think that's a real unique and rare connection, uh, even that I see in you as an artist and as a person. So I'd be curious if you could share some about how your love for these mystical thinkers and some of the mystical practices that you've talked about, some of these spiritual practices, how this impacts your performance and your songwriting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, people like Thomas Merton, St. Teresa Revilla, um, Meister Eckhart, I mean, these were people that didn't fit into neat boxes. You know, uh, many of the mystics veered from the institutionalized version of, um, let's say, Christianity for the Christian mystics, but it was the same across all the religions. They always yeah. veered to the desert. The Sufis. Yep, the Sufis. I mean, um, it's the common thing where they, they found that there was a restriction in the language and that they needed to go to poetics and even language of sensuality and things to express themselves. And so I think I found a home for some of my spiritual thinking in the mystics because they embraced paradox. They weren't scared to say that this was one thing and also the other and these two things can coexist. And that already like sparks my creative brain because I love music that is two things at once or that is bittersweet when it expresses melancholy it does it with a tinge of joy at the same time and you're confused about what you know like that's to <laughs> me the best kind of music is stuff that like articulates the in-between stuff and yeah I just think that in terms of how it impacts me it helps me feel a, a sense of um <sighs> well let, let's say it like this the mystics are, are seeking a kind of unity with the divine, right? Like, and, and an experience that's very focused on it, the experiential journey with all of its ups and downs, you know? It's, <laughs> it's less about the dogma and the doctrine and the tight, small versions of God and more about this kind of like mysterious, infinite, you know, um, mystery that we can actually penetrate and that is actually within us mm -hmm. as well. And to me, that is quite foundational to the way I look at music as well. Like I believe there is this capacity and potential for such exploration and um, mystery and imagination within me. And this is my vehicle for trying to achieve some kind of transcendence. You know, when I'm in a moment, in a performance and I go for a note and I'm not sure if I'm gonna get it and then I get it and then the crowd kind of riles up with me and then there's a fall off the note and it kind of, you know, the voice cracks and the whole band kind of slows down and moves with it. I mean, this these are moments where everyone is having an experience together and feeling like they're getting in touch with something that's bigger than just their own story mm -hmm. so to me that is quite a mystical experience you know and you can actually walk away transformed and Absolutely. if i know anything about mystical experiences and i can say as a kid i had some quite profound you know moments of 
experiencing what I would call this unconditional love that was overwhelmingly real, like mm -hmm. so real, more, you know, and God, I wish I could have those experiences all the time, <laughs> but that's not how it works, is it? But that's the thing that keeps you seeking. You go, ah, yeah. this is possible to yeah. feel these kinds of things. How can I create landscapes and places for, for others to feel that and maybe to replicate that feeling for myself again? So in that way, I think poets, artists have a lot in common with the mystics and mm -hmm. they are okay with things being expansive and abstract and making not perfect logical sense at first read, but they mm -hmm. make sense somewhere down here in the heart, you know? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Light is from everyone, standing on a foreign sun. I've been reading this book called I'll Take You There. Okay. Uh, and the subtitle is Pop Music and the Urge for Transcendence. And mm -hmm. yeah, the author is Bill Friskix Warren. And let me read this quote. Please. Yeah, I think you'll appreciate this. But he says that people are restless and incomplete. We cannot find peace without a connection to something that transcends our experience and can ground it. And he goes on and he says, uh, but transcendence can take place wherever there's a portal to some higher realm. Transcendence can occur through mystical insight through sexual intimacy, or through expressions of empathy. It can be occasioned by the likes of wonder, reverence, or reciprocity. It can be achieved by standing in solidarity with others, by resisting unjust powers and conditions, or by means of historical liberation. Isn't this good? Oh, gosh, <laughs> because yeah. he says, transcendence takes place whenever there is a convergence or an interpenetration of the temporal and the eternal. Whenever something deeper and more abiding than the everyday breaks in, and if only fleetingly, transforms the present. Ooh. You know. Wow. <laughs> that is and, such a wonderful way of putting it. Yeah. It reminds me of what you're saying, even about those moments of performance and those moments when, you know, it's almost like the audience and the performer and the band and everybody comes mm. into something that that really breaks us out of the mundane or out of the normal and you feel like you've touched something outside of yourself, you know? Yeah. And I like how it said that it not only transcends the experience, but also grounds it. And yes. at first, first of all, that's confusing, right? You're like, how can it be both? But <laughs> in a way, I do totally understand that what that means because it puts mm -hmm. you completely in the present moment. And mm -hmm. maybe that's exactly, you know, where the infinite is, you know, the kingdom of mm -hmm. heaven is within you. Well, I mean, we have to be present to accept that, right? We have to be in this very moment. And mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense to me. It's a transcendence of the moment, but also a grounding within it. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's some of that that paradoxical. Uh, right, yes and. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is only really understood when we have an experience of it. It's like love, you know. Love doesn't really make a lot of sense, you know. No. Romantic love. There's so many things that don't, you know, two people that can be so strangely incompatible, but it just works. And in the moment of empathy, you just, it, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you intellectualize it. It is what it is, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I make no apologies. Anybody that listens to Makers and Mystics know that we're going to roll deep out of the gate. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. But I'd be curious to know how music has played a role in your own spiritual journey or in some of your own existential questionings or about, you know, the larger questions yeah. about life. How has music played a role in that? Well, in the early days when I was, you know, about, let's see, 
you know, 10 years old, I guess. I mean, before that, I would write songs when I was eight or nine, but to be honest, they would, you know, I was just copying R&B off the radio and just singing about relationships that, of course, I'd never been in, so they were a bit <laughs> silly. But when it got to 10, 11, 12, certainly 13, 14, I mean, these songs were all on guitar. They were very singer songwriter but they were all asking these very deep questions of the world and of love, um, but they were almost, they were like prayers. They were me trying to seek meaning through these songs. I would, you know, almost all of the choruses would be sort of a looming large question that I was asking. And when I look back on that now, it's quite interesting because it's like, wow, how cool that I had something to voice that stuff, you know, and it didn't have to be suppressed and kind of, but that I could feel that freedom to, and, I, and I'm sure that writing songs also became a portal into me becoming acquainted with prayer and the idea of like actually voicing your questions and your, I, I don't know, I've always been a, a seeker. I've always been someone that doesn't just take information at face value, but wants to, you know, question and engage with it. And songs gave me a way to do that in the early days. Um, these days it's, different because I wrestle more to find the song you know when you were a kid you kind of it's like yeah it's done a verse and a chorus and yeah it's done but now you know I of course sort of arm and are over <laughs> lyrics and try to get the right I know I have a higher expectation of my craft now you know I'm older so I want to have higher standards but there's still a same sense of fumbling in the dark to find a way to express these like longings of my soul that I'm get stumped in normal conversation to express, you know, maybe I try to get out what I'm trying to say in a relationship or in my family or even to fans, you know, and you just can't. And so you're, you're going to music to kind of like a prayer or like a mystical experience, find a voice for these feelings. Um, and there's a lot of faith involved. So that's how I would relate it to spirituality is, you know, so often with any kind of spiritual searching, you are ultimately having to exercise a faculty in yourself that isn't about, into, you know, perfect, neat answers. Here is everything lined up. You can prove it 100%. You, you just, mm -hmm. that's not the right. way it works. Right. You're having to move on experience and these things that can't be proved. So um, music is a little bit like that too. Like I've never been a, I'm not a super technical musician. I'm not like a, I don't know a lot of chords that I'm playing. I don't know. It's, there's a lot of mystery even in the process of it. And I have to have faith to follow through on something, which reminds me of the same faith I have to apply and just, um, mm seeking meaning in the universe um mm -hmm. yeah I, I, I don't know if that makes sense but i do see links i do see links yeah it makes perfect sense i've often said that creativity is inherently spiritual and that genuine spiritual experience will often lead to creative expression it's yeah. I, I see them as, as they're, they're linked you know I, I don't see them as two separate expressions that's cool I mean, when I think about collaboration as well, that seems to be a really deeply spiritual thing. Like the fact that you can 
meet someone for the first time and then have a jam with them or start to go somewhere and it's like an entire language emerges and you're mm -hmm. feeling so connected to this person through mm -hmm. the harmonies that you're choosing together or the the, the groove that your bodies lock into and mm -hmm. you can't help but be like that that's something kind of strange mm -hmm. and on the vibrational level and unexplainable in in the terms of you know what would make two people compatible maybe we actually have nothing in common but we have this thing in common that is it, it, it kind of brings people down to this shared humanity music. Mm -hmm. Like it, when people play music together, it's like you find this beautiful equality, in, mm -hmm. which is, again, another big important part of spirituality is, is mm -hmm. learning to see people, see God in all people, right? Mm -hmm. So collaboration brings about a lot of spiritual meaning to music for me. Beautiful. Kimber, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me on Makers and Mystics. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Oh, you too. Thank you for your insights. I think your podcast is great and I'm honored to be a part of it. And thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave us a kind review on iTunes. Links to our creative collective and to Kimber's official website and Patreon are listed in the show notes of this episode. This episode was engineered and mastered by Stephen Lee Price of Rogue Blue Media. Music is provided with permission by Kimbra. A special thanks goes out to our patrons and supporters who make these conversations possible. Thank you for your generosity. I'm Stephen Roach, and until next week, keep creating. The world needs your art.